Good morning, everybody. Our scripture lesson today is taken from Luke chapter 24, beginning with the 13th verse. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what were you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You would think, because this occurred on Resurrection Day, it's the very afternoon of the empty tomb, you would think that every one of the disciples, the followers of Jesus, by word of mouth, would have gotten the word around, everybody would be dancing a jig. They're just so happy and giddy with this news, Jesus alive, the tomb is empty. But that's not the case. These two disciples are on a journey they do not wish to make. And as they are going toward Emmaus, which may be their place of residence, which is due west out of Jerusalem, Jesus joins them on this journey, but is unrecognized. Now, there are some folks that believe because they were journeying west and it was afternoon, maybe the powerful sun blinded them to his presence. We too know that Jesus' resurrected body was a bit different than the physical body to which they had become accustomed, so maybe that's why they didn't recognize him. For whatever reason, he was not as they expected him to be. Now it's interesting, in this passage, it names one of those disciples, Cleopas. It does not name the second disciple. It leads some folks to believe that perhaps Cleopas is Cleopas is the husband, and the unnamed disciple is his wife. In those days, in that culture, oftentimes the male was named and the female was not. We don't know for sure, but if so, they're making that journey together. And as Jesus comes along, he asks them what they were talking about. Incredulously, they say, are you the only person who doesn't know? Where have you been? Have you been under a rock? What things? And then they launch into what they know. Jesus, this mighty prophet, powerful prophet, was handed over to the religious authorities. He was crucified after being beaten. He died and was in the tomb. And now, some women say they've been to the tomb, they encountered heavenly messengers, and they say that he is alive. And some of the men folks who were disciples went, and they found the tomb empty, but they didn't encounter Jesus. We don't know what to think. And then that plaintive phrase, we had hoped. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Those were our hopes. Those were our expectations. We believed this was going to be true, but now that expectation 
has not come to be. And we don't know what to think. Friends, in our earthly journey, that's a common phrase, isn't it? We had hoped. We had hoped the test would come back negative. We had hoped the marriage would heal. We had hoped that she wouldn't get laid off. We had hoped that that rupture in relationship between us and our son or daughter would be restored. We had hoped, but now we don't know what to think. Sometimes our hopes, our expectations are not met in the way that we want them to be met. It's true in Scripture as well. Over there in Luke chapter 7, we have a part of the account of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that prophetic voice in the wilderness. And you recall that John the Baptist was the one that called Jesus to the forefront of people's attention, saying, this is the anointed one of God. This is the Messiah. He is the one God has sent. I am not worthy even to untie the thongs of his, sang- of his sandals. But now... John is in jail. He has spoken out one too many times about the many indiscretions of the king, and the king is fed up with John the Baptist, and he has put him in prison, and what lay ahead for John the Baptist is death. Now, here's the deal. John the Baptist pointed toward Jesus as the Messiah. He knows that Jesus has power. He has heard the accounts of what Jesus has done, the miracles that he has performed. And yet here sits John in prison, and Jesus doesn't seem to be lifting a finger to do anything about his situation. Do you think John might have hoped Jesus would do something? Do you think he had an expectation that Jesus would somehow act? After all, he had been faithful. He had fulfilled his mission, his role. So John sends two of his disciples with a question for Jesus. When they arrive, they speak it. Are you the one who was to come, or should we look for another? We had hoped, but now we don't know what to think. Jesus' response was, you go back and you tell John, tell John what you see, that the lame are being made to walk, the sick are being healed, the good news is being preached to the poor. Implying, John, look at these things, what you expect, the hopes that you have had may not be fulfilled the way that you want them to be fulfilled, but look at the evidence here and will it be enough for you to trust even when you cannot see, even when your path may lead you on an unwelcome and unwanted journey. Over in Genesis chapter 32, we have a part of the story of a fellow by the name of Jacob. Jacob is one of a set of twins. He is the latter born. The firstborn is Esau. Jacob, whose name means grabber, conniver, deceiver, is grasping his brother's heel even as they come out of the womb. He lives up to or down to his name, however you want to look at it. And through his conniving, through his deceiving, he manages 
to steal his brother the firstborn's birthright, the lion's share of the estate, the lion's share of the authority over the clan and family. Jacob gets it reversed, so he steals the birthright, and so great is Esau's anger and murderous intent that Jacob has to flee. And Jacob wanders for a time, and he still encounters the Holy One. But in those encounters, Jacob always seeks to make a deal. Deceiver, conniver, grabber. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. Always shading the deal in Jacob's favor. And Jacob becomes quite wealthy. But as in most things that are far afield, our sin finds us out. And Jacob, many years later, gets word that Esau is coming to meet him. Not only coming to meet him, but coming with 400 armed men. It's easy to play out that scenario. Jacob, in a panic, gathers all of his, all of his clan together. He divides them into two groups. All of the livestock, all of the maidservants, men servants, even his own family, he divides into two groups and sends them in separate ways, believing that if one is overtaken by Esau, the other might escape. His lineage might continue. And Jacob is left alone. That night, he finds himself wrestling in the darkness with an unknown adversary. It is a tremendous struggle. Neither can seem to gain the advantage Scholars believe that this is the symbol of Jacob wrestling with who he has been and who he might yet be. It is the time of accountability, of God claiming Jacob to be more than he was and to fulfill the purposes of the Holy One for him. As the first hint of the dawn's light begins to chase away the darkness of night, this adversary begins to loosen its grip as if to flee the scene. But Jacob, recognizing this must be a divine encounter, grabs hold of this angelic messenger and holds him tight, saying, you must bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. And so a blessing comes. But it is the strangest, strangest blessing. Your name is Jacob, but no longer. Your name henceforth will be Israel. For you have striven with God and man and not been overcome. A new name is a new identity. A new name is a new destiny. The past does not define your future. But then the strangest part of the blessing is that this angelic messenger touches Jacob in the hollow of his thigh, immediately dislocating Jacob, now Israel's hip excruciatingly painful it must have been and it teaches us two important things the first is Jacob was really not stronger than the Holy One God could have ended that wrestling match at any moment whenever God willed to do it and secondly Jacob whom the text says always walked from that time on with a limp would know that his future did not rest in his own abilities, not in his own scheming or deceiving, but would solely rest in the providence and provision of God. And as he limped, he would always remember 
when brokenness and blessing met and God was revealed to him. So it is with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking there in their disappointment, their expectations that were not met, their confusion, they're limping toward Emmaus with their faith that has been hobbled and crippled, and now doubt plagues them. And Jesus begins to open the scriptures to them, still unrecognized by them. And as he teaches them the truth of God's word, the truth of God's word, they begin to open up toward a different hope, a new hope, a confirmation that God cannot be limited to our expectations and, or housed in by our limited hopes. God is greater than that, and it expands them to know that God is working still. And that late evening, as they approach the place where they're staying, perhaps their house, Jesus appears to be going further, still unrecognized, and they beg him to stay, please come, 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 share our dinner. And so they sit down at table as Jesus takes the bread and it is broken. He is made known to them. Friends, in our life journey, our expectations are sometimes not met. Our hopes are set aside. And doubt comes, and crippling moments where we wonder if God really knows us, cares for us, wants us. Sometimes it's as a result of tragedy unspeakable. Sometimes it is a result of our own brokenness and sinfulness. In my own life's journey, I can tell you the deepest and most profound learnings and understandings about faith have emerged from those painful times when I wrestled, when I wrestled, when I wrestled. Sometimes there are expectations that are not only misplaced, they need to be replaced because our brokenness is unknown to us until God reveals it to us. Fifty years ago now, I was serving as a Duke student. Yes, I was young at one time. <laughs> I was serving as a Duke student at a church on the other side of Greensboro, the east side of Greensboro. My father-in-law happened to be the lead pastor there. Boy, you talk about tough duty. Work for your father-in-law. Some of you know what that's like. And it was a good experience, a good experience, but something happened during that time. He was a big racquetball player. My father-in-law taught me the game. I still love the game. And he would go to downtown Greensboro to the YMCA to do his workout. And there one day he met a young black African named Israel. Israel was an international student at then Greensboro College. They struck up a conversation. They struck up a friendship. And lo and behold, one Sunday, Israel showed up in that congregation of about 250, 300 average worship attendants. And of course, there was a little buzz in that congregation 50 years ago. Today, there might still be a little buzz in some places when somebody shows up like that. And everything was okay because he was, he was 
from Africa. He'll be going back as soon as he finishes school. But then the word came that Israel wanted to join the church. Then the telephone lines lit up. Notes slipped under the pastor's door. Now, my father-in-law was a veteran of World War II, and he wasn't going to take much off anybody, and he believed in just facing things head on. So he made an announcement that the week before, the week before Israel was to join the church, he was going to call a meeting right after the church service, and anybody that had something to say needed to be at church that day and speak their piece. So after the sermon that day, he welcomed anybody to stand up and say what they had to say. Quiet as crickets until a fellow who was well-known, well-liked, well-respected stood. We'll call him George. And George stood and he began to talk about how birds of a feather ought to flock together. And he didn't have anything against anybody, but everybody has their ways, and we should let people have their ways, and people who need to worship together need to worship together here, need to worship together over there. And he made his speech for about five to seven minutes, and then he just sat down. Crickets. My father-in-law said, anybody else got anything to say? George stood up again. And George looked around that sanctuary and said, Now, I've been hearing from a lot of you all week long. And you've been telling me what you're going to say. And now not one of you stood up. I stood up, and I've said my piece. And if you're not going to stand up, I don't want to hear anything else out of you. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to call me. I'm done with this. The next Sunday, I was hoping nobody much would show up. But they did. It was like Easter on steroids. Everybody, every pew filled. Everybody wanted to see what was going to happen. My father-in-law received Israel into the church. He took the vows of membership. And then he went back to sit down about a quarter of the way back on the right-hand side. Now, about three rows in front of him is where George always sat. That was George's pew. And after the sermon that day, it was time for communion. So George came up and knelt just like everybody else. My father-in-law carried the tray of broken bread. I carried the little tray with the individual cups, glass cups in that metal container. George went back to his seat. When it came time for Israel's role to come, Israel got up and I was watching George. I was watching George. Israel walked past George and George's eyes fixed on Israel. He followed him every step of the way as Israel walked down to that altar. And when he knelt... George got up, and he began to walk toward that altar. And all at once, I heard a noise. I heard a noise. I started looking around. Where's that noise coming from? I looked down that metal tray I was holding with the glass, glass uh, communion. It was just shaking like crazy. I, I thought there was an earthquake going on, but it was me just petrified. 
And so I'm just standing there shaking. And as he got close to Israel, he tapped the shoulder of the person who was sitting, who was kneeling next to Israel and got them to move over. And George knelt beside Israel. And when my father-in-law passed with the broken bread, a black hand and a white hand both reached and brokenness and blessing met and Jesus was made known. Friends, that's the real hope of the gospel. That in our life's journey personally, our brokenness is always met with God's blessing as Jesus Christ is made known. But it's also who we are called to be as God's church. That we are the place where brokenness and blessing can meet. Whether it's personal journey or as the body of Christ. As Jesus is made known. Now friends, in just a few moments, we're going to have a time of response. And wherever you are on your journey, unwelcome, unwanted, you can come and share your brokenness here at this place of offering. You may want to pray on behalf of others who are struggling. You may want to pray on behalf of your church that you love so very much. But may that prayer be, be always, God, bring our brokenness and your blessing together that Jesus may be made known in me and in us. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. amen.